this week on the Backtable Podcast. What we did in our process was similar to yours in that that one person that was involved was actively on a weekly basis looking up that patient's details. Are they still in hospital? If they're still in hospital, sure, I'll see them next week. If they're not in hospital, have they been referred to clinic? Have they made their clinic appointments? You know, the next person has been referred to clinic. Their clinic appointment is this week. Did they get to their appointment? Yes, they did or no, they didn't. If they didn't, it's that active following up that patient to make sure that they don't become one of those lost to follow up patients. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. Want to save time when you order medical devices for your lab? Restock Boston Scientific products seamlessly with LabAgent, a free and easy time-saving device. This free solution simplifies inventory management by allowing any user to quickly scan a product barcode with a handheld device. Users have saved up to five hours a week. Plus, your Boston Scientific product arrives with free two-day shipping. Visit bostonscientific.com slash labagent to learn more about LabAgent today. That's LabAgent from Boston Scientific. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to Backtable. My name is Bob Ryu. I am joined by a couple of esteemed colleagues, both local and international, and we'll jump right to it. First, I'll welcome uh, Warren Clements. Warren, welcome to Backtable. How about a quick 30-second background? Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me at the Backtable podcast. I'm an interventional radiologist at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. I'm an adjunct professor at Monash University. So we're a large tertiary hospital in, uh, in Victoria. And we have a range of interests, including trauma, IVC filters, quite a few different things, which we'll chat about soon, I'm sure, no doubt, and look forward to chatting about IVC filters. Excellent. Welcome. And I just have to say, Warren is deserving of some sort of special award here because not only is he on a sabbatical, but it's five o'clock in the morning where he is right now. And so to be on back table, listen up leadership. He needs more than a sweatshirt. Okay. He deserves some sort of special prize here. And I'll uh, also introduce a more local luminary, and that's Primal Trivedi. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm Primal Trivedi here at the University of Colorado. And my background getting into the filter world was really the host here, Bob Ryu. I trained here under him, and he got me thinking about the sticky problem of filter retrieval. And I think it's a perfect issue to talk about in terms of how healthcare is evolving in the United States, what the challenges are to good patient care. And having thought about it for a few years, you know, I decided to write up a few grants and got a couple of them funded that are really studying the problem of filter retrieval from a health services research methodology standpoint. And um, I hope to infuse the conversation with that perspective a little bit today. Great. Welcome to you both. The idea for this podcast actually, or for the topic of this podcast was really Warren's recent publication in CVIR. And it was really caught my attention in that it took a little bit of a novel approach to the problem of filter retrieval. And that's from a sort of multidisciplinary approach, which really has been a model that's been successful in so many different things that we do as interventional radiologists. So in a way, it completely made sense, which is why when I read it, I thought it was really interesting. And I wanted to make sure, Warren, you were here to maybe put it on a little bit of a different platform so we can talk about it. Can we start with you just sort of giving us a little bit of an overview of your paper? Yeah, that sounds great. I should also add that I've read the paper that you both have authored in the JMA 
JAMA network open, which is also very similar. And I think, you know, it's good that we're going to be discussing this more from a quality and systems perspective. I think it's very easy to get down the path of thinking, you know, IVC filters are a procedure. IVC filtration is a tool that we use to try and improve healthcare, improve a patient's journey, reduce their thromboembolism rate. Really, you need to take a step back sometimes and think about this as quality, as what are we doing in healthcare? What are we doing as part of the patient's journey? And this is a rounded procedure. An IVC filter is not something that goes in and stays in. An IVC filter is an insertion, is a patient dwell time. Somebody's caring for the patient while they have that filter and then the patient has their filter retrieved. And only at that point is that loop completed. So I've been working at the Alfred for about probably six or seven years in my capacity as an attending. Before that, I worked there as a trainee and as junior staff member. So I've been there for about 14 years in total. Just to give you a bit of a background of our service, so you sort of can understand the context of where we're coming from. Healthcare is a little bit different in Australia than probably what you both are used to, but probably what also the listeners are used to. So, um, you know, we're a pretty large country and we've got about 25, 26 million people, sixth largest country by land volume compared to the States, which is about the third largest. Victoria is where I work. That's the state I'm in. And we have about 7 million people. We're about the size of Utah. So we're a little bit smaller than Colorado. We have two trauma centers. We're the major trauma center for the state. And Australia as a country spends about 9% of its GDP on healthcare, but has a really good life expectancy of about 83 years. So low spending, but actually there's quality healthcare that's being delivered. We have sort of a national health system type of model where there is a public and a private system. The large majority of that is public and a small amount private. So if you compare, say, the healthcare system of the US and the UK, we're far more aligned with a UK style of healthcare system. But we do have a private sector as well. Most of the IVC filter work does happen in the public system, though. All of this is funded by our taxation. So we have a Medicare system, which is funded by Medicare levy on taxes. And so once we all pay our Medicare taxes, the government then pays out for healthcare. So inpatient care, outpatient care, and funds a range of different medicines as well. All these funding models are based upon the government choosing what is needed to be funded based on a cost and a cost effectiveness analysis. So in our hospital, we have about 38 attendings in total and about 21 residents and fellows. And in the interventional radiology area, we have six interventional radiologists. In our space, we have two single play machines and a biplane machine, and there's four interventional neuroradiologists on staff as well. When I say we have six interventional radiologists, we have six full-time or full-time equivalent interventional radiologists. So five of us are there full-time hours. We don't work outside of the hospital and we have exclusive call to that hospital. And one person works part-time and part-time elsewhere in the private system as well. So that's just a bit of a background of the more bigger picture of where I'm coming from. When did this paper start? Well, this paper started from a meeting about 2016, 2017. A number of us sat around a table and said, you know what, we probably put in too many filters and we don't take out enough filters. At the time, we didn't know the exact number of our retrieval rates. We had an idea, but we hadn't actually looked through the data in its entirety. And we felt that it was low. We felt that it was around 50% and we really wanted to improve it. So we sat around the table. There was interventional radiologists, there was hematologists, there was trauma physicians, there were intensivists. We had nursing, we had pharmacy, and we sort of said, what can we do? And at this point, a number of papers had already started to come out to say, the more active you are involved in this, the more you have a database or a registry or something rather than nothing, the more you have, the higher the retrieval rates. And so we thought, let's do something as active as we can possibly do and see what happens. The purpose wasn't to publish the results. The purpose wasn't to do anything other than improve the quality of healthcare at this point. 
And so that's really what started the process. When we sat around that table, one group, the hematology group, put their hand up and said, you know, we have a bit of funding to have somebody that can be a manager of this pathway or take a little bit more of an involvement. And so they put their hand up and provided that person. And that was that was really what started it all. Well, I'm curious, what got this very disparate group of people together to begin with? I mean, it's great that you had nursing, you had pharmacy buy-in. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Yeah, look, the system here is very multidisciplinary in general. So if you look at a general ward round in Australia, it's generally not just medical staff anymore. There'll be pharmacists, there'll be nursing staff joining on the ward round. It's a different kind of space, even for when I was a junior staff member. So we have the main person involved in this, for example, is an anticoagulation stewardship pharmacist. So his job is not just to dispense medications. He's on the ward round discussing medications, indications, doses with medical staff at the ward round. And so he already had an interest in anticoagulation, patients taking anticoagulation and thrombosis and thromboembolism in general. And we have a very strong thrombosis unit in our hospital from a hematologist perspective. And so the background knowledge, the background idea of everything to do with IVC filtration was already well and truly in their space. So it made sense that this person or this team could be an appropriate place to sort of centralize the process. In the past, we had tried a range of different things. We had left it to the referring doctors who sent the patient to us to refer for retrieval. Of course, that didn't retrieve enough filters in that manner. We had tried organizing it within interventional radiology. Again, not enough filters were coming out. We had tried rebooking patients automatically as soon as the filters had gone in, sending a booking for retrieval. Unfortunately, sometimes you saw the patient too soon or not soon enough. It was very hard to know how long in that journey do you put that referral in. And so we ended up getting people who had come into the hospital but weren't ready for the filtration to be ceased. And so that model was just a little bit too passive. And so we just wanted something somewhere in the middle. Now, the context of this, I think, is important because we read and hear a lot about here the FDA comments around IVC filters and how they should not be used and how they should be retrieved as soon as possible. And that landscape, I suppose, doesn't really exist in Australia. We do use filters. We do retrieve them. We do know it's very important to retrieve them. But this government and governance oversight to try and reduce their use isn't quite as strong. And all the medical legal implications that we hear about over there as well aren't really an issue here either. Interesting. Well, Warren, could I ask just if it's okay, just as a follow-up, was there as much of an overutilization problem to begin with? I mean, I know there's no, the feedback isn't as strong, but how is Australia doing in the 2000s? Yeah, it's difficult to know because the publications in terms of the use number weren't as numerous. I don't think, my general impression is I don't think we had the same problem with overutilization. The filters that were going in were generally not permanent filters, so we're not having to go and take out these long-dwelling filters that were never designed to be removed, like we do sometimes see on Bob's hashtag filter out tweets. So it is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, obviously filter utilization in Europe is also extraordinarily low compared to the United States, and which is why I think a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of the Europeans sort of look at a lot of the studies coming out, like yours, Warren, saying, oh, how to improve filter retrieval rates. I can understand why they sort of yawn at publications like that, because I just don't think they're that relevant. Filter utilization is extraordinarily low in comparison. So it just doesn't have the same impact or level of attention that people are paying to this particular topic over there. I think it's important to consider we all 
I think sometimes you look at numbers of retrieval rates and you think, oh, wow, how am I ever going to get towards 100%? I don't really think about it like that. To me, we need to aim for 100% retrieval. As far as I'm concerned, you know, you have a healthcare interaction with a patient, you place the filter in them for whatever reason it may be, and then that's your patient. That patient has an IVC filter. And at what point should we consider that we shouldn't be aiming for 100% filter retrieval? If that is an optional filter that's designed to be removed and their indication is temporary, then you need to be seeing that patient or one of your colleagues needs to be seeing that patient. And I don't think we should stop until we're getting towards that 100%. So yes, I'm probably not having the same dwell time issues that you're seeing. And I think also trying to get our rates up a little bit higher, reduce the need for advanced techniques, because sure, you might have tilted filters, but when it's only been tilted for a couple of months, you can still get it out with a simple technique or an advanced technique that doesn't require forceps or you know a laser sheath that the kind of things we don't have here anyway. But to be honest, we don't need because they come out in a, in a relatively timely manner. I'd love to unpack uh, a little bit more what we do to get to that point. But before we do that, I'm interested to hear, Pramal, more about what led to the start of your recent paper. Yeah, I think the uh, a lot of what you've said really resonates. And, and I think you're right. There's a lot to unpack here. So let me draw out some common themes and maybe some important distinctions. So just by way of context, the University of Colorado, the study that we published is all local data. So let me explain our healthcare system. We are the flagship coordinary care system in the state of Colorado. We have patients who travel from adjacent states for higher level care. And on average, because the population density is relatively low, we have some unique challenges around patients needing to travel longer distances on average compared to some of the more denser places in the United States, like the Northeast or the West Coast. We started looking at our internal data really just to understand with some granularity how we were doing, you know, began as a quality enterprise, just like you mentioned, and to better inform future studies on identifying challenges with non-retrieval. And I think you've, you've said something that I would propose is there's not 100% buy-in around, which is that there should be 100% retrieval rate. You know, one of the important questions that we need to ask ourselves is what is a good retrieval rate? What are we aiming for and what is acceptable? And there are a few numbers we could probably review from the literature. We just wanted to know how we were doing. And at the same time, clinical care is generally goes a little faster than research. So what had happened is you could define our, our study as really studying a pre-post single intervention. The pre-period was what I would define as passive structured follow-up, there's still a follow-up. Everybody who got an IVC filter was put into a database and we had a, a team of personnel in the interventional radiology department that consisted of a, of a nurse coordinator or, or a physician assistant and occasionally MD, reviewing this list and checking it roughly once a month and reviewing patients and saying, was the filter retrieved or not? And if it's not retrieved, do we need more information to decide whether it should be removed? And if not, if it's clear based on chart review, there were letters sent out. You could describe this sort of categorization as retrieved, need more information, or eligible for retrieval right now. And after that, the next step changed over time. It, it went from, we sent out a letter saying, look, these filters, they can cause problems. When they're no longer needed, they should come out. Please talk to your primary care doctor about uh, retrieval. And that was the more passive approach, which is we're educating the patient, we're educating the referring physicians. Starting about 2016, we took an active approach where when we got to that step of 
we've put these patients in one of these buckets and we need more, either we need more information or we feel like, yeah, we have enough information to say the filter needs to come out. The IR team is playing quarterback, if you will, in deciding whether it's appropriate to remove filter. And it's not so much educating, it's turning to the patient. And then ultimately we figured out more frequently is useful to turn to referring physicians or their primary care doctor to get the relevant pieces of data we needed to decide whether the filter should be retrieved or not. Now, this was all done in still a collaborative fashion where if there's a clinical stakeholder highly invested in that patient's care, let's say it's a cancer patient and they have an oncologist and that oncologist team referred the patient for filter retrieval, we're still engaging them on, on the decision for retrieval or not. But in the majority of cases, it was pretty clear what needed to be done. And if the filter was deemed needing retrieval right away, we would just proceed with scheduling and get the filter out. So that's really the difference between the passive and active eras of our structure retrieval program. And our rates went up from, let's see, about 49% in the passive era to 61%. And this gives, you know, brings us back to what does it mean to do reasonably well with filter retrieval? What does it mean to do really well in the United States, given the healthcare ecosystem we have? And I think this study maybe informs us a little bit when you put it in context of the rest of the publications on what should we aim for nationally? It's a fantastic study from Al, and I really love the use of terms passive and active. You know, it really is a small term, but really, I think, puts it in a great context because it's very easy for all staff involved to be passive with healthcare as much as possible, isn't it? Because we're all busy. We've all got lots of patients that we're seeing. We've all got lots of research. We've all got personal lives. But I think we're talking about a small cohort of patients here that have an implantable device that doesn't need to be there. You know, such as IVC filters, it's Portacast. There's a small number of these patients, but they all have risks, don't they? And healthcare is all about a risk and a benefit and balancing those probabilities or those ratios. And those risks and benefits change over time, don't they? So, you know, when the patient has just had a major trauma and had a PE and can't be anticoagulated, the risk is low, the benefit is high, the IVC filter is inserted. But over time, that risk goes up and that benefit goes down. So it's about actively keeping an eye on that risk-benefit ratio at all times. And I think that's the message I'm hearing for you. And that's really what we're trying to say here as well. What we have done has been very, very similar. You know, this started out from that meeting I mentioned. When we left that meeting, we went away. And the first thing we did was we spoke to our radiology information system manager and we got them to write a script. And that script is run on a weekly basis and it sends an email automatically to all of the stakeholders involved with IVC filters that have been inserted in that time. So that doesn't require any input at that point, but it has an oversight to make sure that script is running appropriately. So that person then gets those UR numbers and puts it into a database. And, you know, again, at that point, you could still be passive in a way, can't you? But what we did in our process was similar to yours in that that one person that was involved was actively on a weekly basis, looking up that patient's details. Are they still in hospital? If they're still in hospital, sure, I'll see them next week. If they're not in hospital, have they been referred to clinic? Have they made their clinic appointments? You know, the next person has been referred to clinic. Their clinic appointment is this week. Did they get to their appointment? Yes, they did or no, they didn't. If they didn't, it's that active following up that patient to make sure that they don't become one of those lost to follow-up patients. When we started off ours and we actually looked at the numbers, our retrieval rates were at about 53%. And of course, you know, you have put filters in that aren't ready to be retrieved at that point. So we refer to those as a plan for retrieval and they might 
either have a clinic appointment date or they might have a retrieval date. And so they were considered to be planned. But then that number increased to 74% in as a retrieval number with 23% planned. So we actually didn't change the number of planned to be retrieved, but we significantly improved that retrieval rate from 53% to 74%. So by the time we looked at the final data, in the final cohort after implementing an active retrieval process, we went up to a 96% number for both retrieved and planned to be retrieved. But we didn't change the plan to be retrieved. Our dwell time was still not perfect. Our dwell time was five months or around five months. Pre-retrieval, it was over six months. So sure, we got it down below six months, which is a nice figure that we know at that point, it does increase retrieval difficulty. But can we do better? Absolutely, we can. And, and we've got some strategies we're looking at to do better because no system is perfect. And even our system has a number of points where things can break down or have the potential to break down and, and that we still need to look at. It's really interesting to hear the perspectives of local institutional approaches to this, whether it's inter-multidisciplinary, as you've kind of described, Warren, and then Primal's active versus passive surveillance. But again, looking at a single system, the challenge I think is multifold going forward as we think about this. One is, how do you scale? And Stephen Wong, who was in the Kaiser system back in the, I think, mid 2010s had published a paper in JVIR looking at the Kaiser system and really trying to make more of a regional effort, at least, if not national, in terms of increasing surveillance and retrieval rates accordingly. I'm not sure where that exists now, whether he was successful in, in scaling that even more broadly. I was just talking to Susan O'Horo, who had a great idea. She was interested in approaching RAD Partners, who has a very robust information system and mining patients across the, the entire 50 United States and, you know, developing a filter retrieval sort of program based on, on that informatics sort of approach, which I thought was, again, a broader scale approach to this. But, you know, I, I want to make a very clear distinction and, and I want you guys to comment on this a little bit. Some of what we're doing is thinking about how we do this going forward, right? How do we optimize our system going forward when, in fact, a lot of our efforts are really geared towards that huge pile of filters that are out there pre-2010 that we're still playing catch-up ball with? And that's a whole different problem, obviously. So I, I just want to make sure we make a very clear distinction on that and people are listening we're still working on that part of it. And I think that poses almost a separate challenge, but we've got to start somewhere in terms of how we do this better. This is a little bit of an intro for you, Pramal, in terms of how you're thinking about, you know, how we do this better on a bigger scale, as opposed to just sort of local efforts as we've been talking about. That's a really good point, Bob. I just want, I want to circle back to something that Warren said in response to your comment, which is, first of all, it's really impressive what you've accomplished. And it's, it's beautiful, the, the multidisciplinary nature of this follow-up program and the outcomes you've demonstrated. It's, it's hard to beat. The reality, I think, for a lot of programs of this kind is that they're fueled by the dedication, the tenacity of the group that's driving it. And the filter retrieval problem is particularly challenging because of what you've articulated, which is Everybody has an understanding of the patient and their need for filter at the time of implantation, but then the patient status evolves. And our healthcare system at least is structured around delivering good care in episodes. So what happens to patients between episodes? How do we ensure that there's follow-up 
one of the ways in which we can increase these episodes of care to catch patients is a clinic. And you've articulated as of prior publications that that's maybe overuse of healthcare is bringing everybody back. So how do you sustain follow-up between encounters, right? That's, I think, one of the central challenges. And that's where I think we can learn from our experience, but also be forward-looking, which is this is, as we think about the increasing sophistication of our informatics tools and NAI, I think there's a big helping hand coming. You know, you could probably design a reasonable formula for gathering the information that already exists in our electronic medical record system. You know, the patient may not be seeing us, but they're within the healthcare system and you could pick up the trails of data that you need. You know, are they back on anticoagulation? Is the filter still in? Is there a retrieval code in the system? Some basic information that would not need to be sifted through by a, a human being would, I think, be a good start. And Jeremy Durack, I think, has published on this, which is leveraging informatics to its capacity and then having people involved when it's important to make decisions. The other piece, Warren, as you mentioned, it really, your program didn't change how many patients were deemed appropriate for retrieval. The number who were left with permanent filters didn't change. And for us, that was not our experience. In fact, the active strategy, the biggest impact it had was in the number of patients who were lost to follow-up didn't change. It was the number of patients who were deemed needing permanent filtration were higher in the passive era. And my hypothesis there is when you have these few clinical stakeholders and they're all doing other stuff, bringing them together and getting a collective agreement on what needs to happen is difficult in real world settings. And when you can't agree on something, it's actually easier to just kind of lay things, keep things the way they are. You know, so it's a, it's a cognitive fatigue maybe that's driving the decision. I don't know this for sure, right? It's retrospective data, but it's easier to just say, well, we're not sure. Let's leave the filter in for a little longer. And I think that's what happened in the passive era. In the active era, if there's one person or one team involved, they can make that decision a little bit quicker. So I think the challenge ahead of us now is, as Bob articulated, what do we do about that huge number of filters that's out there? You know, the estimates are somewhere around 150 to 200,000 filters were put in annually, you know, many fold higher than many countries in Europe combined in the era of overutilization. There, a lot of them are still out there. And I think this is where AI helps. There's, there's different tools out there. I'm personally in communicating with a group that has a really promising tool and we need some help. I think we're a few years away from an AI tool that does scans incidentally, you know, uh, abdominal x-rays, for example, to identify forgotten filters. That's a whole part of the discussion that we haven't had today. And then what we're talking about is really how do we get a program in place that combines informatics tools and physicians relevant to the filter care process together in a smart way where we can achieve good filter retrieval rates with basically the least amount of effort possible so it can be scaled up. I think the scaling piece of this is we have to get the heft out. We have to, it cannot be driven by the energy and effort of a small team of healthcare providers. It has to be pragmatic. It can't, it should be delivered in real world care settings and it has to work, you know, between healthcare encounters. Well, I'll go back to a, a question that I think both of you have raised. Let's look at current practice and we'll ignore for now, at least the promise of AI in terms of helping us improve retrieval rates and outcomes. I'll start with you, Warren. Is 100% achievable? I mean, is that what we should be? Is that reasonably achievable, I guess, is my question. Look, I think it has to be. It has to be at the end of the site. It has to be what we're looking for. And I certainly think that we can aim for it. And I think there are probably some 
unique systems issues in Australia that probably allows that, which I'll touch on in a second. Whether or not that's achievable in another healthcare system, you know, I'd be interested to see your thoughts. But I certainly think we we can. There's a couple of interesting points that were just that were raised and discussed, and and I wanted to just unpick a little bit further. And one thing that's a common thread between both of the active processes that we've talked about here is that there's somebody that takes responsibility, right? It's a person that takes responsibility for this. And that is a key factor, whether you have a database, whether you have a clinic, whether you have a multidisciplinary, because you know we have buy-in from all our colleagues at the hospital, but there's still one person or one centralized group that is, that is being the driver in terms of actually physically going into that patient's record. And while that's a key to this process, it's also a risk because you then have no redundancy because then you have a very high functioning program that's very dependent upon the actions of few. That requires that person to be active, that person to obviously be well and at hospital and people take leave and people get sick and we've just had a COVID pandemic. And I think that's really where that AI has that role to play here. What that role will be, how that role will look seems beyond my own understanding of AI, but those that know will probably tell me it's two seconds around the corner. And I'd be really interested to see how we can automate that process a little bit more. It also requires a system to work. So it requires whatever steps you have implemented to work in the manner that you actually designed it. Plus it also requires your booking system to work. So it means that when I put a booking request in for outpatient clinic or for a filter retrieval, it needs to all happen and it needs to all happen pretty smoothly. And I think that's probably the difference that I think is the reason why we're looking at 100%. And it's probably the system of healthcare in Australia. And the key there is that not in our paper in particular, 98% of people were Australians or had access to Medicare services. And by that, I mean, the only people that don't have access to Medicare are those that are visiting Australia and not from a reciprocal country. So there is a culture in Australia that I can go see my doctor because, particularly in a hospital, because it is free. Not only is my healthcare admission free, but all of my follow-up is free. So there is very much a culture that I come in for advice, I take the advice, I come back for my appointments. You know, I have no concerns at all about if I come back, an insurance company is going to ask me to pay this or the hospital is going to ask me to pay this. So when we send a letter for a patient to have it retrieved, from a systems perspective, there is almost no barrier for that patient to come back. Now, sure, there might be other barriers, you know, the size of Victoria, Melbourne is a big city and then regional and rural Victoria, you know, is vast. It's it's up to seven hours or more drive away to the northwest edge of Victoria. And so there might be other barriers. And that's probably where our last couple of percent have come from. It's patients that either are very far away, can't come back or don't want to come back for their own reason with some patients and particularly the cohort that are the major cohort that receive filters at our hospital, which are those after major trauma. You know, the general demographic for major trauma is a male in their late 30s or early 40s. And, you know, a lot of those patients don't have primary care doctors or don't want to engage with their primary care doctor for their own personal reasons. And that's really that last barrier that I want to try and break down. That's the loss to follow-up group. And, you know, it's interesting, Pramal, that you said that you weren't able to change the loss to follow-up rate in your study. We were slightly able to improve our loss to follow-up rate. And to me, that's the last percent that gets you to the end. But I think that the differences between the rates in, in our studies could be accounted for by systems-related things as well. And I think it's it's important to think, and Bob, you articulated this perfectly when you said, you know, we've got a lot of filters that need to be retrieved. Sure, that's an issue. 
but this is a, an issue running in parallel with that issue. This is about looking forward. An improvement in healthcare is all about using data to make decisions to improve healthcare in the future. And, and I think what we're talking about today is the groundwork that our groups have laid to present this data, to show healthcare systems where we're at and potentially what can be done. And then we have to now take that next step, which is quality healthcare, and try to improve quality by using that data to drive changes. I've got some great ideas that I'll chat to you about, you know, maybe after your thoughts from Alan Bob and about what we can do moving forward as well. It's really good. The system has to work. And I think that's a really good kind of encapsulation of how to fix a lot of the issues around filter retrieval. What hold them back is not just about our decision about tracking patients, but there's a lot that flows before and after, including scheduling and communication with other clinical stakeholders, the patient, their family, their financial considerations. And to address the point about we weren't able to move the needle on loss to follow-up, it spurred a follow-up investigation. And, and this isn't published, so take it for, for what it's worth. But the primary predictor of that loss to follow-up was this composite index of a high area deprivation index. So what, it, what it's looking at is multiple indices of how deprived is the community that that patient is residing in? That could be a geographic barrier. It could be financial education. And usually when you have a high index score, it's all those things. So this speaks to this. It's not just the healthcare system. It's how healthcare is structured in the United States that presents a particular barrier to getting to that 100%. If someone's worried about, you know, you could educate them about filter retrieval, but if they have to travel five hours, like they often do in Colorado for a follow visit, or they're worried about the copay, being a source of financial toxicity, that's hard to change with a little letter. Well, Lauren, before we get to sort of, I think what'll be the closing chapter of the podcast today in terms of future directions, where we wanna go with this, I'll make one comment and reference one of my own papers. Actually, it's, I had to think about it for a minute. It's, I think it's like 10 years old now. I can't believe it's been 10 years, but it was a prospective study. We looked at a couple hundred patients where we were doing consultations in advance to figure out what type of filter patients needed. And I'll cut to the chase. Bottom line was that the best retrieval rate that we were able to achieve, and this is where we were doing the consult, deciding exactly what filter they got. For patients who got retrieval filters, we got up to 87%. And the majority of those patients in the 13% basically ended up in a condition where we could agree the patient would not benefit from filter retrieval. In other words, usually they're in some sort of terminal condition. And loss to follow-up, at least in, this was at Northwestern at the time, wasn't too big of an issue. Now, obviously, it's a huge issue in the trauma population, other centers, et cetera, I get that. But... I agree with you, Warren. I think we should be aiming for 100%. That is absolutely the goal. But if I see somebody hitting mid-80s, that's pretty darn good. That, that may be the best that's feasible given the limitations of the systems that we live in. Anyway, I'm very interested to hear, Warren, you, you referenced some ideas you had, and, and I think that'd be a perfect way to, to sort of wrap this up. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, this is an evolving process, and, and I agree with you that you should know what your retrieval rate is whether that's 30, whether that's 50, whether that's 80 or 90, you can't make a change without knowing where you stand currently. So I would encourage all our listeners today to go back to your hospital and find out what your retrieval rate is. Go and do that, crunch those numbers, work out that data, have a platform to start from. And if your retrieval rate is fine and your system works perfectly, that's fantastic. But by taking the time to look 
is the first step to making a difference. And that difference might be small, it might be one patient, but for that one patient, it may be extremely important because they may have been 10 days away from that filter becoming irretrievable or requiring a significant effort to retrieve, or they might already have venous symptoms from venous hypertension and partial IVC thrombosis. So go and look at what your data is, go and think about making those changes. And I would applaud whatever rate people have if that rate is something that improved from yesterday, and if you have an intention to improve that rate further tomorrow. One thing that, that I think I wanted to just touch on is about moving forward. And while I'm happy with the rates that we've got at the moment, we've still showed in our paper that the median dwell time was 150 days. So we're talking about five months. And we all know that filters are easier to retrieve the sooner they come out. When a filter is tilted, you haven't given it time to get that fibrin cap. When the patient has just had the filter, the filter is at the front of their mind. They know that they need to have it retrieved. You know, we're talking about an asymptomatic device in patients, and, and I'm touching on loss to follow up here again, but when the patient feels well, then you need to think about how and why you're going to get them back in the hospital for something when they feel well. You know, I've just gone through a major trauma. You know, I've just gotten through my pelvic rehabilitation. Why do I want to go back to that place? I'm going to get PTSD if I go back to that hospital again. I've spent three months there and now I feel well. Getting them back sooner is when things are still in their mind, when all of that active care is still happening and you don't have to turn them from this encounter being over to getting them back to the hospital. So the next step for us is about agreeing with our stakeholders on how we can somehow get this process moving sooner. So unpacked in the paper, and I didn't go into too much details today, is we have two pathways for our filters, prophylactic and therapeutic, on retrieval. So prophylactic filters are seen by the team who requests at the moment, by the team who requests the filter to go in. That's 99.99% the trauma unit. The science and nuances behind that are beyond the discussion here, and I won't unpack the New England Journal of Medicine paper from 2019, but I'll be happy to chat about it at the next conference that I see you at. So I think the, the other arm is the therapeutic filters. So those patients have had a thromboembolic event and we're placing a filter and we know that that patient is going to need anticoagulation for an unknown period. So that's the reason that our hematologist was so heavily involved because they were very interested from a thrombosis perspective at following these patients up early and making an early decision about retrieval as an outpatient. But the next step that we're thinking about here is what can we do as an inpatient so these patients are in hospital for a period of time. It's not usually a small period of time when you have a thromboembolic event or you're unwell enough to need an IVC filter. And so the next steps are thinking about getting that median dwell time from 150 days. I'm aiming for 30 days. I'll be happy with anything less than 150 days. But essentially what I want to do at that point is if you've got a prophylactic filter, do you need to be seen in clinic? The filter was prophylactic. You never had a thrombosis event. You've gone on to therapeutic, sorry, you've gone on to prophylactic dose and oxaparin. Is there any particular reason why you can't have that filter retrieved before you go home from hospital? Or send that referral through to, as a booking referral for a filter retrieval on discharge. You shouldn't need to be seen in clinic. I'll go see you in a ward around just before you go, introduce myself, consent you for the filter retrieval, and tell you that I'll see you on the operating table in four weeks. And if the system works. To me, that's the step in that pathway. The second step is the therapeutic pathway and, and what can we do with those patients? Again, I think it's about thinking about when that anticoagulation is started, 
and thinking about that constantly changing that dynamic risk-benefit ratio. Once that risk goes down for the filter because you've started anticoagulation and now you've they've been on it for two or three days, it's stable, they haven't had a, a systemic bleeding event, and the benefit now changes because they're on therapeutic anticoagulation. We know that from the PREPEC2 trial that anticoagulation plus filter is of no benefit. It's one or the other. Why not take that filter out again as an inpatient? That's going to be a challenge because we're incredibly busy and that's a very difficult decision to make. But I see no reason why we can't at least be doing caveography in these patients. And if the filter has no thrombus and they've started and stabilized on anticoagulation, taking that filter out as an inpatient, you know, we're going to be seeing retrieval rate. So we're going to be seeing retrieval times in the 10, 15 days, which are unheard of. But I don't see why we don't can't start looking at, at that moving forward. And the last thing I want to touch about, Bob, is, is you talked about what can be done nationally. And I think this is a really interesting point that I really would like to look at in Australia. We've got a small population and we look towards registries as an interesting way to think about how we follow people up. They've worked really well in a range of different settings in Australia. The Australian National Orthopaedic Joint Replacement Registry has worked absolutely well. The buy-in from orthopaedic surgeons was almost unanimous, and it was just a great example of how registries can work well. Registries work well for a range of different follow-up things, mammography, pap smears, making sure the people on screening tests are working really well. And we should leverage off the systems already built for those. In my opinion, we should leverage off those systems and start a national filter registry where we have this process where we talked about somebody takes responsibility, whether that's from our your IVC filter clinic yourself, or whether that is you know, a multidisciplinary team with one person that plays that role, or whether that becomes some AI-generated process. I think we need to put this in a national registry and say, you're going to get a letter in the mail, you're going to get a call, you're going to get every week you're going to hear about your IVC filter until you get so sick of hearing about it that you're going to come into hospital and say, Warren, if you take this filter out, will you promise that I won't get any more calls about this IVC filter? And I'll absolutely say, happy to take that filter out for you today. Really terrific, thoughtful ideas, Warren. Thank you very much. Pramal, any any thoughts on this from the maybe big data approach, how you're thinking about this from obviously being immersed in your grants? Yeah, I think I'll uh, maybe close with a couple of points. One is, and this really reinforces Warren's message, if the ceiling is, let's say, 85 90%, or maybe 100%, we are a long way off national data suggests it's 15 to 20% of the United States. So I think it's good for us to acknowledge that gap and say everybody who's published, and we, we consider certain centers to be expert centers in the retrieval process, we're anywhere between 40 and 60%. We still have a ways to go. So everybody could do better, whether that's retrie- absolute retrieval rates or getting it out in a timely fashion. And I think we have to celebrate the small wins. We have to be incremental about it. And that's where I think the question of what is good internally, locally versus systemically? There, there are different questions. If we set the bar too high, we may lose centers that are interested in incremental growth and can that's all they can accommodate is a, maybe a couple percent increase over a year or two. But that's meaningful, right, at a population health level. So I would say probably, you know, if we can move the needle nationally from 15% to 30% in the next five years, that's, that's a big win. And how are we going to do that in 2023? The passion, the fire that drives the work we're both doing, that's key locally. Increasingly, our healthcare systems are going into this hub and spoke model, right? Where we have multiple hospitals that are part of a, of a hospital system or patients are able to go between one hospital system to another. And so we have to think about 
increasingly, not only what is going to work in my unit, but what is a common denominator to that process and try to make it as lean as possible so that it can be deployed systemically. And we minimize the amount of effort expended by physicians, by patients, by their families. Really, the path of least resistance tends to work. And if you can align economic and healthcare incentives to it, uh, then we have the the best chance of success. So I think the the path forward is let's celebrate the small wins. Let's think about leveraging informatics as smartly as we can. That often just means turning on existing features in, in Epic and then ensuring at each unit facility, you know, that's your hospital, that this is not, you know, while driven by the implanting physician team, IR, vascular surgery, whatever, that it is truly collaborative because we have to make sure that the schedulers understand the importance of filter retrieval, that the scheduling processes are worked out, that the communication piece, which often is multidisciplinary, is working. So thinking about the healthcare ecosystem and ensuring that the entire process map from implantation to retrieval is working is going to be the way forward. That was great. Um, really terrific conversation. Warren, thank you. It was great having you on. I'm so glad we were able to connect. Terrific thoughts that you've shared. And of course, Pramal, you too as well. Thank you. Really interesting perspectives, and, and I hope the, the listeners appreciate this as much as I do, um, getting to be a part of it. So thanks very much. I think we'll end the podcast here and uh, look forward to future conversations and more filter retrievals in the future. So thanks to you both. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Bob. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 